Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Now we've got just over 48 hours to the NBA trade deadline. In fact, the deadline is going to be at the end of the show on Thursday. So when you hear the Boomtown Rats bumping in on Thursday, you know the teams will only have a few minutes left in order to make a deal. So if you're a Laker fan, that's either going to be the greatest moment of the season or it's going to be your worst. Because you're either going to get Anthony Davis right now for the stretch run to the postseason or you're going to wait until the summer. Or maybe you're not going to get this guy at all. You see, for Laker fans, trade season is the new postseason. Getting Davis would be like throwing another banner up in the rafters. Laker fans have been photoshopping AD into purple and gold for weeks. And that story has pivoted and changed about 15 different times since I got off the air yesterday. I mean, there was that report that AD's reps have given the Pelicans a list of teams that he would sign an extension with. The list includes Los Angeles, New York, Milwaukee, and Los Angeles again. In other words, Lakers, Knicks, Bucks, Clippers. Lakers obviously make sense. Obviously, that's where he wants to go. The Knicks, I guess, make some sense because it is New York, because they've reportedly tried to talk to New Orleans about a Porzingis deal and then got shut down and nothing since. Pretty cool, I guess, to include the Bucks, considering they can't really make a deal for him. But hey, Milwaukee, it's got to be an honor just to be nominated, right? And the Clippers look like they're going to keep their powder dry until the summer, so they have not yet made an offer. So when you get right down to it, the list of four teams is really a list of one. 80s should have just given the Pelicans a list of four teams that said he will sign an extension with the Lakers, the Lake Show, the Purple and Gold, and that team that Kobe played for. Then, Brad Turner of the LA Times reported an actual offer from the Lakers to the Pelicans. Quote, Lakers willing to give Pelicans cap relief for Anthony Davis by taking Solomon Hill, for Lonzo Ball, Kyle Kuzma, Ingram, Rondo, Lance Stevenson, Beasley, and two first-round picks. So what the Lakers are trying to sell is a number of future stars, salary cap relief, and a couple of first-round picks. And if you're wondering why the Pelicans aren't all about that, here's an idea. The Pelicans already have Julius Randle. So what the Lakers are essentially offering is a chance to reunite the 2017-18 Lakers. The team that won 35 games and finished in 11th place. Pelicans got to be like, really? Really? You do that for us? We could have the 2017-18 Lakers plus our existing Drew Holiday? Hell yeah. That's a dream team now. And on top of that, we'll throw in or you'll throw in a few vets on expiring deals. And a couple of first round picks that are probably going to end up in the 20s. And all we have to do to get that amazing package is part with Anthony Davis. Man, where's the pen? Where do I sign? No wonder Woj tweeted yesterday, quote, Pels are waiting on the Lakers to overwhelm them with a historic haul of picks. To Nola, that means Lakers offering four first round and second round picks as part of a Davis package. Pels want to be compensated, perhaps even overcompensated to even consider a deal with LA now. Let me repeat that last part for the people in the back. Pels want to be compensated, perhaps even overcompensated 
to even consider a deal with L.A. now. No wonder Woj reported that the Pelicans didn't even bother to counter. You know, it's a bad offer if they don't even bother to counter. Instead, they countered it through the media, letting everybody know they want four first and second round picks. They want to be blown away with picks or a future all-NBA player not weighed down with a bunch of good but not great players. Because you know the Pelicans are pissed. They're pissed at the Lakers for this. You know the last thing that they want to do right now is give in and trade AD to the place where he wants to go and to do it in the same conference and to help the L.A. Lakers. Of course they want to be overcompensated, especially since they don't have to make a deal right now, especially since Boston can't even jump into the bidding until summertime, especially since Boston may have more to offer. So, of course, New Orleans is saying to Irv and Rob Palenka, you could do a hell of a lot better. They're offering a future Hall of Famer and a perennial MVP candidate. They could get a hell of a lot more, and I agree with them. And if you're saying, and if they're saying, that last year's Lakers and a couple of picks isn't fair compensation for a future Hall of Famer and a perennial MVP, then they're right. Like when Magic called Pelicans GM Dell Demps. With that offer, man, Dell had to be laughing his ass off. I know Dell's in a tough spot, but come on, it's not that tough. It's not so tough that he'd be pumped to form a 35-win team, especially when he knows a couple of more things that I want to point out. Boston, again, can enter the Davis sweepstakes this summer, and they really want Davis, and, and they're dangling the possibility of Jason Tatum to make that happen. And there is one other thing. Somebody is going to get the first pick in the draft. And that first pick is going to be Zion Williamson. And if I'm Demps, and I've seen Zion play, and I'm guessing Dell has, I might want to know if I can get him in a trade for AD before I trade AD. Because with all due respect to Lonzo, Kuzma, and Ingram, Zion is going to put asses in the seats. He will sell tickets a lot faster than they will. Doesn't mean he's guaranteed to be a better pro. It just means he's new, he's fresh, he's transcendent, and people are going to pay to see him a lot faster than any of the Laker leftovers. And through all this, you've got Laker fan drooling over Davis like a dog looking at a steak. They would love nothing more than to have this guy on their bench. Even if he's in a suit for Thursday's game against Boston, what better move? What better moment and what better place to unveil this guy than in the garden to try to rub it in Boston's face after Boston's jammed L.A. so hard the last four months. But I doubt that's going to happen. In other words, do not print up those Davis jerseys for Thursday night or Sunday afternoon. You can close out your Photoshop for a while because while this isn't over, the Lakers have a lot of work to do to make your dream a reality. And I think I can go ahead and assume that I will not be interrupting the Boomtown Rats, to announce the Lakers to pull the trigger Thursday. And finally, as proof that this story is constantly changing, here is another twist from this morning. Chris Haynes reports, quote, the New Orleans Pelicans front office prevented a healthy Anthony Davis from making his return from a finger injury on Monday night, league sources told Yahoo Sports. Davis, 25, eagerly wanted to suit up at home against Indiana after recovering from a left finger avulsion that sidelined him for a little more than two weeks, sources said, but the organization elected to keep him inactive. You know what that means, right? A deal is imminent, right? 
Wrong. It just means the team has got nothing to gain from playing him before the trade deadline. It means that Team AD wants everybody to know that he's healthy and that the team blocked him from playing to make the team look bad. Of course, they blocked him from playing. What do they gain from having this guy play before the deadline and bust his finger again? They'll sit him until after the deadline, and if he doesn't get moved, the expectation is they will suit him up again. And if he doesn't, and if they don't allow him to play, an ugly situation gets even uglier. So I end this monster block by saying, if the Lakers really want this guy, they're going to have to do better than that. Because the Pelicans know they can do better than that. And they're right. I understand the Lakers not wanting to give up all those picks because it'll tie their hands for the future. But what are they saving them for? Two players as good as Anthony Davis? That's not happening. I know it's a negotiation. I know that was not the Lakers' last and best. But if they want this guy now, and they don't want him to hit the market in the summertime, they're going to have to do a hell of a lot better. Because as awkward as it all is, between Davis and the Pelicans now, they do not have to deal him right now. And in order to get him now, the Lakers are going to have to blow them away, and obviously they're not. Offering them the reunited 2017-18 Lakers team is not going to get it done. And if I were Dell Demps, I wouldn't take that package either. It's never been easier to get life insurance than it is with Select Quote. Hey, listen, if you're like me, you've got a mortgage and a family who depends on your income, then you need to protect the ones you love with life insurance. Life insurance can pay off a mortgage or help send the kids to college. It's peace of mind. Now, maybe you think you can't afford it. Chances are, Select Quote can help you get it for less than a dollar a day. Select Quote Comparison shops up to 10 highly rated companies, including Prudential, Banner Life, and Mutual of Omaha, and others, to find the company with the best rates. As an example, Select Quote could find a 35 year old man a $500,000 policy for under $19 a month. Or a 37-year-old female, a $750,000 policy for under $22 a month. That's less than a buck a day. Select Quote could save you time and money. So get your free quote right now at selectquote.com slash Rome. That's selectquote.com slash Rome and get a free quote. Do not put off protecting your family another day. Selectquote.com slash Rome. Get full details on the example policy at selectquote.com slash Rome. Your premium could vary depending on your health, issuing company, and other factors. Not available in all states. Chris Mack is my guest. Chris, so good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. How you doing? Man, I'm great. It's great to talk to you, Chris. So you lost a tough one in North Carolina Saturday, then you turn around, and as I mentioned, you faced number 11 Virginia Tech last night. I got to get your thoughts on the mindset coming in, and what did it tell you about your team that they're able to bounce back after a tough loss and show the mental toughness they did in coming back and playing the way they did? Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, not only uh, you know, do, you, do you lose a tough one where you don't feel like you played at your best against Carolina, you know, it's not like we had a week uh, to sort of stew on it and and uh, and game plan. You know, of course, both teams were in the same box. You know, we both had 36 hours. You know, those big Monday games follow Saturday come really, really quick. But uh, I was really uh, pleased to see, you know, the, the resiliency our guys showed. I thought they were ready uh, right from the very get-go. Um, you know, when you go on the road, uh, being able to get up early, 
uh, sort of gives your team, you know, that confidence um, and uh, sort of shows the opponent, hey, we're here to play. And I thought, you know, we set the tone with our um, – you know, with our effort and our attitude right from the get-go last night. Louisville head coach Chris Mack, my guest. You know, you'd love to see your guys, Chris, be an extension of the coach. I thought Ryan McMahon had some great comments after the game. He had 17. He said, quote, we were full of crap in certain areas of the UNC game, and we made sure we weren't tonight, end of quote. I mean, that's pretty bottom line. But overall, does that sound like a decent summary of the difference between Saturday and Monday? Well, and you always you always tip your hat to the opponent. You know, we played Carolina, who's top ten team, uh, top ten good, Jim. So, uh, you know, it'd be foolish to think it was just uh, our un, our own undoing on Saturday. But I did think, and and I think our players felt like there were some areas where uh, we could have done a lot better. You know, we got pummeled on the glass and uh, and didn't handle the backboard after talking about it in the in the days leading up. Uh, Virginia Tech doesn't pose the same type of problem, but Again, we had to go into the to the game with the correct mindset. We had to be able to keep the ball out of the lane and limit their terrific three-point shooting. And I thought our guys were very attentive uh, to a very quick scouting report and uh, and did the job last night. And it was good to see our bounce back and our response. We're talking to Louisville head coach Chris Mack. You know, you mentioned the work on the glass. Chris, watching the game on Saturday, there were a number of shots of assistant coach Dino Gaudio. And I've got to say, I love seeing him back on the sidelines. What's it been like coaching with him again? And then what does he bring to your players, especially when it comes to coaching their effort on the glass? Sure. I mean, it, it for me, it's very familiar. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do when I first got the job here was to have to coach the coach. And uh, when you have a guy that's uh, been around the game for as long as he had, you know, he's a head coach here in the ACC. Uh, he has great knowledge base. He's worked with incredible players over the years, NBA players. Um, and so it was really um, it was really comforting for me to have him on staff. He's done a great job. He's fit in seamlessly. I know he's uh, happy as a pig in mud. The fact that he doesn't have to necessarily commentate games but can actually help coach and, and bring out the best in our players. He's doing a great job on our coaching staff. Uh, as are all our guys, but uh, Dino's obviously sort of new to the fold. Louisville coming off a nice win over Virginia Tech. Chris Mack, my guest. Dwayne Sutton had 17-9-4 last night, but I'm not sure those stats really sum up his impact. Malik Williams said of Sutton, quote, he's our dog. You know what you're going to get from him every night. It's never a question. At the bottom of every pile, you know that Dwayne is somewhere in there. I mean, so how critical is it to have a, quote, dog like Sutton who's going to battle for everything, but most of all set the tone for everybody else? He's your type of guy, Jim. Maybe he'd be right at home in the jungle. I like you know, it. He's just—he's uh, a dog. He—he he gets after it. Uh, he doesn't—he doesn't play the game uh, for statistics. He's not the guy that's grabbing a stat sheet after the game to see how many points, how many rebounds he got. He only cares about one thing, and, and that's winning. And his teammates know it. I think that's why they have so much respect for him. And uh, he's come a long, long way. You know, he went to UNC Asheville. Uh, out of high school because no one offered him a scholarship other than those guys. And he came back home. He wasn't even promised a scholarship in his first year. And, you know, he's, he's, all, he's all business. Uh, he's got a workmanlike approach. And like I said, I think our team sort of takes on his identity a little bit. You know, Chris, obviously you're all business. You're intense, especially in the middle of the moment. You had a halftime interview last night that maybe didn't go exactly the way you would have liked. You apologized for it afterwards. But when you're in the middle of a heated ACC battle and you've got that intensity and you've got the emotions flying and you're thinking about the message that you want to give to your team at halftime, how challenging are those halftime interviews? Well, they can be challenging, you know, and, and uh, I wasn't at my best at halftime. 
and uh, I did apologize to Allison afterwards. You know, I my mind was consumed with what was happening in the last two and a half minutes, and so you know, I'm I'm human. I'm gonna make mistakes, and uh, that's why I tried to rectify it after the game. Of course, only ESPN showed the interview, but that's okay. You know, I'm uh, I'm a good example to our players that you're not always gonna do the right thing, and you got to be able to uh, you know have enough humility and be able to take ownership of it and move on and. Uh, you know, all the all the excess commentary about it, I can't worry about that stuff. You know, I just got to worry about my team uh, and getting better each and every single day. And you did, Chris. You owned it. You apologized for it, and you move on. Chris Mack, my guest. So you're in the middle of a four-game stretch right now. It includes a home game against number 9 North Carolina on Saturday. Right. Then you've got number 11 Virginia Tech last night, number 22 Florida State this Saturday, and then home against number 2 Duke a week from today. How do you go about managing the energy and the emotions of your team through a stretch like that? You just have to worry about, you know, the here and now. You've got to worry about next drill, next practice. You know, we don't look at it um, from a holistic standpoint. We, we don't sit there and, and go down the schedule and say, Hey, this is one we could drop. This is one that's going to be tougher. This is a bad matchup. We, we don't do any of that stuff, Jim. We just try to worry about, hey, what can we improve in? What do we need to improve in today? Uh, and just sort of take one game at a time. And I know that's, that's sort of coach speak, but I think that's the best way that you have to handle it. And, um, you know, so far I like the way our team has handled it. You know, the thing I really respect, Chris, is like even in the middle of this battle, as always, I'm not going to have you on the program and not address the vital issues of the day that are outside the sport of basketball because you can do that thing. I'm talking about this gem that you dropped on Twitter, and I quote, the quality of a cheesy roll-up at Taco Bell goes way down at peak lunch hour. Best served 2 to 4 p.m. Please note. That's the tweet, Chris. you got to break that down for me. How did you discover this, and how does that impact the way you schedule your visits to Taco Bell? Well, you know, I went went on back-to-back days, and so I had a really good sample size of, you know, being able to be there during lunch hour when it was, uh, you know, the the cheesy roll-ups weren't very rolled up. They weren't very fresh. They weren't very hot. The cheese wasn't melted. And, uh, you know, the day before, I was actually there a little bit later simply because of, of my schedule. And, you know, they had sort of toasted them on the outside. Completely different experience, Jim. So I just wanted to make sure that the general public who eats at Taco Bell uh, knows the deal. And so I'm always happy to help with those type of service reminders. Man, that is so great. And I'm so glad you feel that way. So as I mentioned, one <laughs> thing that you've always been known for is your ability to identify an issue and then quickly correct it. You've identified the issue with the cheesy roll-up at peak lunch hour. If you were coaching the staff at Taco Bell, how do you go about correcting that? You either need more workers uh, or you need more uh, whatever, that, whatever the machine's called, a cheesy roll-up maker. Who knows? Could be a microwave. I'm not, uh, I'm not that smart. I haven't been inside the, the kitchen at our local Taco Bell. I love it. I'm, gl- I'm glad that you identified the problem. So finally then, what is your go-to sauce? There's only one sauce I recommend, Jim. That would be the fire sauce. Got to. 100%. 100%. That's the play. You've got Louisville coming off that big win over Virginia Tech last night. They're 17-6. and six. They're 8-2 and two in ACC play. And their next challenge is number 22, Florida State, Saturday night. Chris Mack is their head coach. Chris, great to get caught up. I appreciate you, and it's always good to have you on this show. Always good to be on, man. Thanks for having me, Jim. Let me hit you with a quick weather update. And if you saw the parade earlier, you'll know what I'm talking about. Two of them, actually. The forecast for Boston today was sunny with a high of 59. The forecast for here in Los Angeles, rainy with a high of 55. It's raining. 
How do I know? Our green room is soaked. It's raining. There are leaks in our building, I know. The Patriots getting over on the Rams in the Super Bowl is one thing. Boston getting over on L.A. in the weather is a freaking nother. Let's be real. SoCal moved on pretty quickly after that Super Bowl loss. Hell, the fans didn't even show up for the game. So trust me, they moved on pretty quickly because they were never there in the first place. But if one more drop of water hits the pavement after nearly two straight weeks of it, another Purge movie is going to break out. Rip a Lombardi out of this city's hands, and the best you get from most people here is a shrug. But jam an umbrella into their hands, and it's time to call the National Guard and break out martial law. So, while Boston, Boston enjoyed perfect weather to run the duck boats out for the city's second parade in about 100 days, back here in L.A., it's raining. And Sean McVay is watching the rainfall and probably still wondering exactly what the hell just happened. Remember after that game when he was asked that question, what the hell just happened? He said, honestly, I'm numb. I'm numb. I got outcoached. Because now it's 48 hours later. Not even. And there's still so many questions about Super Bowl 53. How did that offense lay that egg? How did Johnny Hecker get nearly as many touches as Todd Gurley? How did son of bum run that winning race and still lose? And how did a team that scored more points than anybody in the last two seasons, one of the best offenses ever, score the least points ever in a Super Bowl? Now, you knew the hood would have something for the Rams. But let's be real. Nobody saw that coming. Vegas sure as hell didn't. That was the highest over-under ever set for a Super Bowl. And the 16 points scored was the lowest ever in a Super Bowl. And now for the first time in his short coaching career, Sean McVay is taking some. In fact, a lot. He's the one getting dirt kicked on him. People are telling Jeff Fisher jokes. Now he's suddenly the punchline. From the prodigy to the punchline, man, when it goes, it goes fast. And after two division titles in two seasons, 24 regular season wins, and a run of the Super Bowl, 48 hours later, McVay is still getting roughed up. And you know what? I get it. I understand it. He should. Because that's the way it works. And Sean McVay knows that. They hyped this dude when he lit up every scoreboard in the league. And now they're killing him for being one Greg the Leg missile away from posting a donut on the biggest stage. Donuts. <laughs> Alvy, there's only one thing you can do now, right? You got to stand there and take it. And then after you stand there and take it, obviously you dust yourself off, you get the hell up, and you get back to work. That's the part of the story that I'm most interested in. What does Sean McVay do now? Last year, the Rams made the playoffs for the first time in 13 years. But they went one and done. Then GM Les Snead went out and had a bad-ass offseason. One of the best ever. Snead could have taken a victory lap after making that brass move to hire a 31-year-old head coach who got him to the postseason way ahead of schedule. Instead, he empties his pockets, he throws his car keys on the table, slides his watch off his wrist, pushes everything else right to the middle. He swings trades for Aqib Tlaib and Marcus Peters. He signed Sam Shields. He closed Indomitian Sioux with a dinner in Malibu. He locked up Aaron Donald. 
Now Sean McVay needs to have a similar kind of offseason. He noticed what I'm not saying. Notice what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying he's overrated. I'm not saying he was overhyped. I'm not saying he got exposed. You don't do what this guy's done for the past two years and not be the real deal. You don't do what he's done in terms of Xing and Oing and, and more importantly, establishing a culture and relating to the players and getting them to buy in the way he has. You don't do that with smoke and mirrors. Every GM with an open coaching gig this offseason wasn't sprinting to hire a McVay protege because this guy worked some scam or pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. He said it himself. He got outcoached. Definitely, I got outcoached. By the greatest coach ever. No shame in that. I spent yesterday telling people that Bill Belichick was the greatest coach to ever walk a sideline. That Bill Belichick might be the greatest coach in the history of American sports. Yet Belichick got outcoached by Doug Peterson last year. Belichick got shredded by Nick Foles. Belichick was the one who left his best corner on the sidelines when they needed him. Belichick was the one who wasted a three-touchdown, 505-yard night from Tom Brady. He was such a red ass that his Hall of Fame quarterback and his Hall of Fame tight end both hated the guy for a while. And a year later, they're buried in confetti and rolling through Boston with a six-pack of Lombardis. So, the hood even had his turn in the barrel. And now it's McVay's. And while he's going to need to hit that beat down with some ice Ice. and ibuprofen, ibuprofen, don't get it twisted. This is just the start for the Rams. They'll be back. McVay will be back. He'll be better for it. He'll go to school on it. He was way ahead of schedule. He's not overhyped. He's not overrated. He didn't get exposed. He got turned inside out. He got beaten badly. He got outcoached. He got outclassed. He's 33. What was Belichick doing when he was 33? Remember how Belichick started his career with the Browns? Football season is over. Tax season is here. TurboTax Live is a new way to do taxes. It combines tech with on-demand tax pros who can answer your questions and offer personalized advice. Real CPAs and EAs can help you with your return and find all the deductions that apply to you. Their tax experts are there when you need them so you can file with complete peace of mind. TurboTax Live's on-demand CPAs and EAs can not only answer your questions and offer advice, they can even review your return with you going over it line by line so you can feel confident that you're getting the maximum refund. TurboTax Live has CPAs and EAs who are the real deal. They're licensed professionals with the experience necessary to ensure that your return is done right. That's expert-level reassurance from someone who has invested in your success and has your back. TurboTax Live with CPAs and EAs on demand. See details at TurboTax.com. Tyler Kepner. Tyler, great to have you back. How are you? Good, Jim. How are you? Good, good. Good to visit with you. Let's start, Tyler, with the offseason. You know, we knew that Bryce Harper and Manny Machado were going to be the biggest prizes in free agency. At that time, what kind of a market were you expecting for both these guys? Well, I think I was still kind of uh, you know, in that old, old-time old mentality, I guess what you could call it now, of, of expecting these guys to generate a lot of interest um, and big paydays. Uh, 
because of their age. I mean, you know, these front offices are, are very conscious of the aging curve uh, of players now, um, not play, not paying guys deep into their 30s and 40, early 40s. Um, but these guys are 26, so I thought it'd be pretty easy for them to find good deals because teams would at least say, you know what, the first five, six years of the deal are going to be great and we'll live with the back end of it. But that hasn't happened. All right, so what's going on here? I mean, pitchers and catchers are due to report next week. How surprised are you that neither of these guys has signed with the team yet, and how do you project it playing out? I guess I shouldn't be surprised because last year we were dealing with this too. Um, you know, a lot of guys didn't sign in, until February last year or even March, but those guys weren't the caliber of, of Harper and Machado. I really thought that um, these guys were sort of slam dunk, <clears throat> superstar, no-brainer type of guys. So... Um, I guess I am surprised, but maybe you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be because we had this similar deal uh, last year. And, and, and the crazy thing is, I just always sort of expected there to to still be an outlier. That was what the industry, you know, for players relied on for so many years. Right? It was just you know, one owner saying, "I've got to get this guy no matter what. I know it might be a bad deal, but I want him now. Get him for me now." And we see so much more restraint now on the part of these uh, young GMs who the owners trust. Um, you know, with, with their number projections. Tyler Kepner joining us. You know, you made the point about last year, J.D. Martinez was a really late signing with the Red Sox, and that worked out just fine for both he and the team. But I see your point. I mean, these two guys were supposed to be different. It was supposed to be different with Machado and Harper, and it hasn't. I'm curious, what's your sense of what other players around baseball think about how this free agency has played out with these two guys, and do they have concerns about it? They really do. Um, I mean, every player you, you talk to, the agents you talk to, um, they, their world has really been, their expectations have really been um, thrown out of whack um, because for years and years it was sort of understood. You get to free agency and that's your uh, payoff for all the years that you were under team control. Um, you know, even sort of uh, innings eater type of starters, fifth starter, fourth starter types could get you know, $15 million a year contracts for, for four or five years. I mean, we saw a few years ago, right, uh, Mike Leak and Wei-Yin Chen, Ian Kennedy and Phil Hughes, you know, good major league pitchers at the time, but, you know, not front-end guys, and they were breaking the bank. But nowadays, these guys, I mean, Wade Miley had a real good season last year, um, you know, for when he was pitching 15, 16 starts. For Milwaukee, he got one year and four and a half million. That's kind of what, uh, what you're getting now. And players are upset because they feel like um, – you know, if it's not outright collusion, I don't think the owners are dumb enough to do what they did in the 80s in the same way. Um, but they feel like the numbers are marginalizing them and pointing out all of their faults rather than pointing to, you know, higher salaries that they were used to getting. Tyler Kepner is a national baseball writer for the New York Times. Philadelphia and the White Sox have both been reported as destinations for either or both players. The Padres have been mentioned recently. So if you had to guess right now, where do you think both these guys end up? I kind of feel like if they if they had a place they wanted to be, they would be there by now. They would be down the tracks and 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 making a deal with one of those teams because it's been so long. Um, but it's a cop out to just say mystery team, right? Because you know I don't know who that mystery team late entrant would be. I still think the Phillies have enough money and they're a big enough market um, to where they should be able to get one of these guys. Um, you know, it makes some sense for Machado. He'd get three trips a year back home to Miami. He'd get to stay in the part of the country that he's used to in Baltimore. Um, and he knows people there. They need offense, all that stuff. Um, and they're, but despite what their owner said early, they haven't really gone out and spent that stupid money. I guess, 
you know, you gun to, gun to your head. I still think he, Machado will wind up in Philadelphia. And Harper, because he's done deal, because Scott Boris has done so many deals with Washington before and been creative in doing it in terms of, you know, deferring money, I'll say Harper back to Washington. But really, I might take the field in both those cases because it's just been such, it's so stale right now with those teams. You know? We'll see. Tyler Kepner joining us. Now, you recently did a sit down with Christian Yelich which I want to talk to you about in a second, but he joined the Brewers last offseason at a time when the Brewers were really smart and really aggressive in the way they were making moves. They went from an 86-win team to a 96-win team and came up one win short of the World Series. So then why aren't more teams looking at what Milwaukee did and thinking, you know, we could do that too if we were aggressive and approached it the way they did? Right, and Lorenzo Cain. I mean, Lorenzo Cain was a guy last year that the metrics probably wouldn't say that you should sign you know, an over-30 outfielder, a center fielder, um, to the kind of deal he got. I think he got five years. Um, but it worked out beautifully for Milwaukee. Um, they had their best season since 1982. Um, so, you know, and, and whether in that fifth year Lorenzo Cain is not worth the money or the fourth year, well, you know, he's already taken you further than you've been in 30, you know, 36 years. So I, I agree. I mean, you know, and J.D. Martinez, like you said earlier, um, that was a, a, a deal that, you know, put the Red Sox or kept the Red Sox way over the, the luxury tax, um, which the Red Sox don't see as a, as a cap, but pretty much everybody else does. And it worked out great for them. Um, but I guess those are viewed as the exceptions and that most players, you know, the, 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 the deals that speak louder are the ones that have blown up on teams like uh, Jason Hayward and Chris Davis on the Orioles. And, uh, you know, you Darvish was a bad deal last year. Eric Hosmer didn't really deliver in that first year. And you could go on and on. You know, Miguel Cabrera's extension looks really bad right now. Um, so teams focus on those. But you were right. There are exceptions to everything. And if you, I was saying this the other day, if you believe in greatness, um, that some of these athletes are just that good, then you got to pick those guys um, and, and find them. Like Justin Verlander right now, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's on a huge contract, and he's, he's living up to his end. He's doing great. He's 35. He's going to be 36. Um, Max Scherzer's in his mid-30s. So there are going to be those guys, um, but I guess they're the outliers because they're the guys going to the Hall of Fame. Tyler Kepner joining us. All right, so I mentioned your book, K, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. It comes out on April 2nd. Before we get to the book itself, let me ask you this. You finished recording the audio book. I've got to ask, yeah. how long did that take, and what were those sessions like? That was fun, man. Like, I, I, you know, I do some radio stuff here and there, you know, they, calls like this and, and then, you know, occasional guest uh, analyst jobs. But it was, it's different, man, sitting in that, in that uh, little audio booth and, and where every word counts. And if you get one word slightly wrong, you've got to go back and do it over again. Um, but it, it was four days. You know, I did four days of recording and about four hours a day. Um, and the voice was really – I mean, tell you, the first day took a lot out of me physically, a lot more out of me physically than I thought. And then once I got used to it, it was fine. Um, but it was it – was, I enjoyed it. I really did enjoy it. But you, you, you realize, like, the funny thing was, like, I, I quote so many people in the book, and when I go into a quotation, I felt like I almost had to, like, change my voice a little bit to let the, <laughs> let the reader know that it was a quote, but I didn't want to do imitations, right? So I didn't want to, like, imitate. If someone has a Southern drawl, I wasn't going to, like, imitate them, but I had to make my voice say, sound slightly different. So that's, you know, for you, for people like you who use your voice for a living, it's, it's, uh, it's probably no big deal, but uh, it was neat to kind of utilize that 
part of your toolbox. Hey, listen, if you're changing up like that and you're going to drop some impressions, you got to get more money for that, all right? If you're not just going to say, quote, <laughs> end of quote. So you talked with 18 of the top 25 pitchers in terms of strikeouts. What were the conversations that stuck with you the most? Um, well, I loved I loved talking I'd really to any generation of pitchers, um, but the older-time guys were, were a lot of fun. Um, I mean, talking to Carl Erskine, the old Brooklyn Dodger, who's still, you know, he's in his 90s and he's still as sharp as ever, um, just about learning his curveball down in, in, in Cuba in the Winter League and then um, what it was like to have teammates who threw spitballs and how they did it, um, what it was like to – be pitching on a, been an era when people didn't believe that there was such a thing as a curveball. Like these games weren't on TV all the time, and they had to get this special, you know, motion picture technology um, to, to show that a ball could actually curve. Um, you know, he participated in some of those um, early TV series. He was teammates, actually, not teammates, but when he was in the minor leagues, Carl Erskine in the late 40s, he got to know Three Finger Brown, who was staying at the hotel where where the minor leaguers were were uh, put, you know, where they were put up in Indiana, and he was talking to me about like how to throw the curveball and how your you know your index finger is kind of just in the way because pressure's from the middle finger. And he's like, "What if you didn't have an index finger like Three Finger Brown?" I wow. actually talked to him. It, it was great, you know. That, so that connects you all the way back to the turn of the century, and that's what's so fun um, to me about baseball is the way these guys pass down these these. Um, you know, heirlooms from one generation to the next. And pitchers love doing that, man. Like even Mariano Rivera and Roy Halladay at the All-Star game. I was lucky enough to talk to Halladay in early 2017 and, uh, you know, telling me about how how, how uh, Rivera gave him the tip for the cutter that really took him to a, another stratosphere those last three big years he had on 9, 10, 11. Um, so it was – pitchers love talking shop with each other, and, and uh, I was just really grateful that they were willing to – share those stories with me. Now, that's really good stuff, actually. Now, hitters talk about things like launch angles, exit velocity more than ever. How much has the craft of pitching changed over the years? It's changed a lot, particularly recently, because uh, there's there's more freedom to do, um, to, to to pitch differently than, you know, the, 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 the you know, Spalding guide would suggest. I mean, we saw that a couple of years ago with uh, Lance McCullers throwing 24 straight curveballs to end the ALCS. Um, because that's what he was feeling, and that was his best pitch. So you do it. Rich Hill throws more curveballs than, than than anything else. Um, it's the hot right now. We're in the era of high fastballs and then curves because hitters have learned how to get those swings down and launch those sinkers. We don't see those sinker specials. Again, you talk about the free agency. That's you know Dallas Keuchel is an old time style pitcher. I mean the the Tommy Johns and the Jim Cotts, you know guys like that would love him and do love him because he he you know he gets contact. Um, it allows Keiko to pitch a lot of innings and face a lot of batters, but he's not striking out guys, and front offices don't like that. Front offices like high strikeout guys that you can replace after five innings with another high strikeout reliever um, and another one and another one. So it's a power game right now, and some of that finesse um, is, is, is lost, so you don't see guys throwing the sinkers as much and, and, and trying to induce weak contact. That's an art, too. That's a skill. Um, and we're seeing less and less of that nowadays. So one, one last thought about that in terms of the power game. I mean, there is that craft of pitching, what you're talking about, and then there's the actual use of pitchers. How much has that rise of hard-throwing relievers impacted the way that both starting pitchers and relievers approach their jobs now? Yeah, it, that, that's, a, that's a great point because if you're told that you don't need to go through a lineup three, four times, then you're not going to have the motivation to innovate and to search for different weapons. A guy like Mike Messina, 
um, you know, who, who I learned more about pitching from than anybody covering him mm. for a long time with the Yankees. You know, he would just, he was always trying to come up with new ways to get guys out. And if he didn't have this pitch, he'd go to that pitch. And, and, and if he wasn't feeling it this way, you know, he'd, he'd have another way to get you out. Um, you know, nowadays it feels like a lot of times if a guy's got a big fastball and so many of them do, you just teach him one or two little wrinkles off that pitch and then they're, and they're ready. Um, because, and they might be ready because there's plenty of guys lined up behind them. But back back when you only had a you know a handful of relievers in the bullpen and it was mostly your day your game to pitch, you had to come up with ways to get guys out in the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth innings. Um, and I, I think a little bit of that freelancing is uh, is gone nowadays because pitchers are pitching to scattering reports um, and and not maybe as in, being as intuitive as uh, their predecessors were. He is a New York Times baseball writer and the author of K. It's a History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. That book is going to be released on April 2nd. Tyler, really quickly, did you talk to Nolan Ryan for the book, and what was that like, if so? Yeah, I did. That was fun. Um, you know, he's, he talked about how different it is pitching inside these days, as you, as you might expect from, uh, from his era. Um, and we talked about the curveball. Really, I was interested because he had such a great curveball, too. Yeah, he did. And uh, I tried to dispel some of these myths. Like, the curveball really bad for you when we see all these kids in little league is the curveball really you know really that bad for you and and the more i found from guys like nolan and other guys is that the curveball itself is not bad it's it's doing something improperly um that's bad but if you if you throw that pitch correctly you could throw it when you're when you're young it doesn't matter it's just what ryan was saying is that there's not enough coaches who know how to properly teach that that pitch and then kids get into the bad mechanics and that's when they get hurt but the pitch itself is nothing to be afraid of. So it was it was great to talk to guys like that because they know more than I'll ever have a chance to know. So to talk to Steve Carlton and Bob Gibson and Nolan Ryan and Greg Maddox, it was it was a joy. You're making it awfully tough for me to let you go because I was going to say just that. I was going to ask you about kids throwing curveballs, and you answered that. I was also going to make the point, man, Nolan Ryan, for all the heat that he threw, he had an amazing curveball, and I'm glad he got into that. One of my favorite interviews ever, Tyler, and I did this early in my TV career, was Bob Gibson. Man, this guy was so intimidating yeah. and so compelling. What was it like to talk to him? Well, he, he was great, and, and, and he – you know, because he, I was particularly interested in the relationship between him and Steve Carlton, because Carl was my all-time favorite player, and, and, and Gibson always hurt, and he just understood that, in, you know, being hurt was part of the deal. I mean, he took stuff to overcome his injuries that, that have been banned by the FDA since then. I mean, he was always in constant pain. Um, and Carlton, seeing this as a younger pitcher, was like, I want to throw that pitch, but I don't want to feel like that. And Carlton, you know, eventually was forced to kind of throw that 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 slider when he was getting hit around a little bit in the, at a tournament in Japan. Um, he threw it to Satahara O, and O went flying back, and the pitch, you know, break broke right over the plate for a strike. The old Gibson slider, and Carlton was like, "All right, I got something here." But Carlton didn't want to get hurt, so he became the workout fanatic. Um, I mean, like on a level nobody's ever seen, and uh, and he never hurt his elbow, and he's really proud of that. So. Um, but Gibson himself is great. I mean, he, he downplays the notion that he was always headhunting. He said, believe me, if I wanted to hit someone, I would hit someone. He never <laughs> lead the league. You know, he never led the league and hit batters, hmm. um, but he, he would use it for effect. And, uh, you know, guys would be looking for that slider, and when he tried to come in with a fastball, that's when they'd get hit. So often the slider was what, hit, was what caused a guy to get hit because he had to be aware of that pitch out there. And then when Gibson came in, he said the batters basically hit themselves. Guy was so intimidating. What about Carlton then? He Carlton was such an amazing pitcher, but he obviously was pretty prickly and not a big fan of the media. How was he to talk to? He was great. I mean, I you know I, I kind of let him know that this is a 
this is uh, friendly territory here. I mean, I, I, I let he's his guy. know, look, I mean, I'm, he's my favorite play, pitcher of all time. Right. I want to talk to him about the slider. That's all I'm interested in. And he was great. We talked for about 40 minutes. First thing he says, so, Jim, he says, so you're writing a book. I go, yeah. He goes, don't you know people don't read anymore? <laughs> I said, great. I said, well, man, when I was eight years old, I wanted to be Steve Carlton. I learned that wasn't happening. So I, uh, I got to go with my strengths. And he laughed. And we had a nice conversation. Hey, Rex, what was it like to grow up with a dog's name? Romy, I can't believe you just did me like that on a nationally syndicated talk show. You know, I don't want to tell LeBron how to handle his business, but I have a Ph.D. in load management, so I'm going to drop some bowelage on this hairline. You don't manage your load by missing games. You manage it by stocking the lake with brown trout. War Josh Gordon getting a ring and hitting a Pawn Stars for drug money six minutes later. No. Any old time, Alvy. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Any old time. Not a very good call. Nooch, what's going on? Rome. Hey, thanks for the vine, man. Hey, I was going to come in yesterday, but I don't think Hawk liked my joke about him looking like a gender-neutral Ken doll with detachable mustache. But that's okay, man. I told him I would drop it, and I did, and we came in today. It's fine. Um, I just want to say seriously, man, it was it was awesome meeting you and i know this might not come as a surprise but i was baking like a cupcake factory on my way up there so i am kind of sorry if you might fail any future drug tests by standing a little too close to me (laughs) um real quick man you know that undeniable it factor that you always talk about like you ooze that thing man like whenever you walked up you just have that it you were you're too cool romy and you made me feel very welcomed and I appreciate it. And I'm truly honored to be a part of this family. And let me let me lay something out for any new listeners you may have. The clones are a family, right? Rome is like the epic patriarch of this family, right? XR4TI is the crappy little kids that are always breaking stuff in Target. Hawk is obviously adopted. And your clones are like your middle-aged, loser, alcoholic, gambling, degenerate cousins that you normally don't talk to. But Rome, you're a good enough guy to, uh, to shake my hand. And uh, I do appreciate it. One more thing before I get out. Um, there is Jungle Inc. going down tonight. I'm going to do my best to scope it. Uh, it'll be on my Twitter profile, at Bob Ganooch. Um, so if you want to see what that's going to be like, that is, uh, that'd be great. Uh, War, Nooch contacting a realtor to take the first steps to becoming Nooch in NOLA. I'm out. Nooch in NOLA. Hey, Matt, brother, what's up? What up, Romulus James? Hey, thanks for the vine. To that idiot saying that about my ink, you ain't from my neighborhood, homie, so don't put my name on you anywhere. Uh, I'm in here to eat crow, Romy, from New England and North Ridge. The child's got over on the greatest place on earth. Scoreboard Boston, props on beating L.A. yet again and having one hell of a run this millennium. But your accents are still horrendous, and you're repped by lobster boy Eric in Orlando, I'm sure, will be flying his Patriots flag on his shrimp boat barefoot down in the Gulf of Mexico this afternoon. So props to you guys, man. But that's not why I called, Jim. A couple weeks back, that grease-pan face of a caller known publicly as Unethical in Vegas took a run at your boy, Matt, in L.A. Listen up, you Vegas parking lot vagrant. You don't know about my jail record. And that weak sauce banter you claim is smack doesn't even qualify in the jungle as tap. It's more like tap dance if you ask me, you oil-soaked derelict. Cows that sweaty degenerate, making waitresses uneasy, 
thinking of the half-smoked cigarettes he's saving for later and begging for comp drinks after blowing his $45 gambling allowance. You pit boss, brown-nosing puke. Keep my name out your mouth, or I'll go down to Vegas and rip those pepperonis right off your face, then feed them to you for lunch, you loser. That's all I got, Jim. War Belly Clarkson still finishing off her Super Bowl spread. Unwar ethical. Outro. Unethical in Vegas. All right, so if memory serves, unethical in Vegas snatched himself a golden ticket for that run that he took in Matt in L.A. And a smoker. He doubled up. Unethical. Line number one. Hey, look at you, Josh. You're on the air. <laughs> Talking about Elsa's Rome. Here I am. You know, Rome, if we would have met up in Atlanta... I'm so polarizing. You would have grabbed a pen and had me sign your arm. You know what, Jim? It would have been your first tattoo. It's good to get back in the jungle, Jim. It's been a while. You know what I am for Damakon Sue? Ha, ha, ha from Lions fans. You know what? I'm so glad that Tom Brady and the Patriots won Michigan, man. You know why, Jim? Because it makes everyone else mad. Golden ticket? Of course I'll take that. But when's the hack off, Rome? And it's always a pleasure to call you. Because I'm an alpha male. Peace, Rome. Ah! That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. If you were to play that back, Josh, do not run to Twitter and act like you got to the end of the phone call without getting run. If you play it back, Alvin got in before you ended the call. Good night now! Shopping for insurance can be time-consuming. That's why when it comes to your auto and home insurance needs, make things simple and trust the experts at Allstate. They help you get the coverage that fits your needs while helping you bundle your auto and home. Bundling saves you money and time, so you can enjoy the things that matter most. Contact Haymarket agent Rick Robertson or tap the banner to learn more. Are you in good hands? Not available in every state. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company, Allstate Property and Casualty Insurance Company, Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates.